Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Brett Wigdorts is the co-founder and CEO of Tiny, previously founder of Teach First. Brett spent 15 years building Teach First, a non-profit that combats inequality in our education system by giving disadvantaged children the education they deserve. Teach First attracts, train and recruit great teachers and head teachers into primary and secondary schools in low-income areas. His current venture Tiny focuses on early years childcare and support. Brett noticed a huge demand for childcare in the UK, the lack of supply, even though there are lots of talented people interested in becoming childminders. Tiny helps people get registered, trained and licensed as childminders, then gives them everything they need to run a successful small business. As an experienced social impact entrepreneur of 20 plus years, Brett has a ton of interesting insights and advice to share. Hey Brett, real pleasure to have you on the show today, how are you? Good, nice to be here. Good. So look, um, lots and lots to cover today because I want to chat to you about both businesses, uh, Teach First and Tiny, as well as like the areas of impact that you focus on, which is like education and childcare. Um, but first, I noticed you dedicated pretty much your whole career to helping children get access to like the education support that they need. Where does that come from? Like that passion for educating our young and, and why is that so important to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think education is one of the um, fundamental human rights and um, also um, civil rights that every every child, every human being should have. Um, because it's the way, you know, people can get the most out of themselves. I mean, we all have abilities and skills, but if we don't have the education that we deserve, then many people can't, you know, um, let let that loose, basically. And I think one of the massive um, inequalities in life and in England today is that some children get access to a, a world-class outstanding education and other children don't. And I don't think anyone can defend it. I don't think, you know, I've never met anyone who thinks that's okay, or that's fine. But yet, um, people aren't doing enough to change it. And I think this is something that really needs to change. Um, so it's something I've been passionate about. My family, for the most part, are teachers. So I come from a family of teachers. So I think I grew up with that. But to me, it's just this fundamental um, human right that everyone deserves a, a really high quality education. Definitely. Yeah. And, and if I think back to like, my my upbringing, I think before the age of about seven, I think I'd been in like five or six schools because my family moved around quite a bit in Cornwall and that went from like schools as small as like, you know, the tiniest of little primary village schools where the, the education wasn't great to being privileged enough to go to a private school where the education was absolutely like, incredible and set me up for, for life, basically. So, yeah, the huge variations in what's available. Do, do, do you kind of just, just focus a bit more on the education space? Um, and I guess the education system in the UK, like, could you just explain, like, in terms of today, like, at a high level, what are some of the main problems that still exist within the system and, like, why those problems exist? I mean, there is a massive still postal code, code lottery in British education. For a while, it was getting a lot better. And, um, you know, I do think it's improved a lot. But there's still the problem that um, many schools in the country don't um, don't manage to get give a really world class education, while others do. So I think sometimes the same child could go to two different schools, and in one school, you know, do really well, get great results, um, move in a nice um, path to a to a better adulthood, better career. Um, and someone who go the same child goes to a different school, and they don't get that just by luck of the postal code. 
you know, the last few years, it's been incredibly um, problematic that a lot of schools are struggling to attract staff for all sorts of reasons. I think uh, struggling to attract great leadership. I think a head teacher is so important in, um, in schools and many, many haven't been able to attract great heads recently. So I think there's really, um, um, a lot of, uh, you know, variability. Yeah. And I do think in, in, you know, there is something around ensuring teachers, you know, get enough money and, um, you know, we can keep and, and keep the best teachers. But I think also, yeah, what I've seen in the British system, there's a lot of importance of leadership, like getting great leaders into schools is, is hugely important in this country. Definitely. And um, that's probably a decent segue into Teach First. Like, could you explain to listeners what Teach First is and, and, and what it does? Yeah. So I started Teach First about 20 years ago. Um, the whole idea of Teach First is to attract, you know, some of the best talent into teaching in um, schools in disadvantaged areas, and then also becoming long-term leaders who make that a major part of their career. Uh, most end up staying in teaching, which is brilliant. Some move into other careers, but we try to keep we try to keep them in, engaged in the mission. And many many work in charities or policy or in other areas. Um, so I think, you know, that all gets to the fact that really children in uh, disadvantaged areas deserve the best teachers. And many times they weren't getting that in the past. And, you know, that's what they need and that's what they deserve. 100%. And, and just to explore that last point a bit further, like the the children from a disadvantaged backgrounds um, and like the quality of the teachers in, in the schools that they'd be going to, what what's the barrier there? Is it just teachers don't find those kind of schools that are attractive to go and work for? It's hard, like it just makes it hard to recruit for those people or is it something else? Yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, some of these schools, I mean, first of all, it, it's difficult. So, you know, when you have children who come from um, wealthier families and they get all sorts of support at home, um, you know, maybe tutoring, all sorts of um, outside activities that they're part of, it's not always easier. I mean, sometimes those children can be also very difficult and have other challenges, but sometimes it can be a bit more uh, stable environments. I mean, often children from, you know, better um, economic background families have more stable environments at home. And that makes it you know easier to be a teacher there. I think another issue is many of these schools are um, in coastal communities or communities that are not near, you know, areas that many, um, you know, whatever, many, many top graduates want to want to work in or live in. So, you know, many of these schools aren't in central London or central Manchester or some of the more sexy places that, um, you know, people might want to move uh, to further their careers. Um, you know, I remember visiting schools in Grimsby where, you know, they just really struggled to get teachers and they really struggled to get leadership. And um, they had these amazing kids there who were just, you know, almost desperate for great, for more teachers. And, um, you know, that was um, often a challenge because a lot of, you know, top, a lot of university graduates, you know, don't go to Grimsby. You know, that's a, a lovely seaside town. Um, instead, they want to go to the bigger cities. So I think that's also a big challenge that we often faced. That makes sense. And I guess coming to your point about like some of the major problems in the education system is around just the recruitment of great people, whether that's at teacher level or like the, the heads and the leaders within these businesses. And I have friends that are teachers. I'm sure most people do. And when you chat to them, it's it's kind of always the same message of like, overworked, underpaid, um, but they've all joined teaching because they generally enjoy working with children and and, and teaching. Um, so I guess to come to that point and the barriers that exist, how, you, how do you manage to attract people to that career path? And then also like from a retention perspective, how do you get them to stay in teaching for a decent amount of time? 
So, I mean, you know, so I left Teach First about five years ago. Um, so they probably have all sorts of other techniques now, you know, but broadly what we try to do is build a community and a cohort to really um, show that, you know, this is this is a great career opportunity. This is you part of a great community. You know, we really look very deeply at um getting universities students when they're looking at their next career we look at maybe a bit um first bouncers we call them people who are just a few years into um careers you know who aren't happy maybe went to be an accountant and realized accountancy isn't that much fun and uh, um you know we got a lot of people like that uh, for any accountants out there um and um i think that was something we would do and and i think we would really just position ourselves as a really great opportunity for you know people looking to make a real impact and have a real leadership opportunity nice and in terms of i I don't know you have stepped back from teach first but just to give you an idea of like the scale of the organization today like how many countries is teach first operating in schools it works with teachers it's yeah working with yeah so in england teach first is the biggest graduate recruiter in the uk Uh, i think it still is um it's recruiting like about 1500 teachers a year or so um, the part, there's a partner organization teach for all that, that I helped create, um, which is now in about 60 countries around the world where they're all independent organizations around the world and they're all doing really well, but they all work together under this teach for all umbrella. Um, so, you know, there's really great teach for sister programs like in India and throughout Europe and Australia and in South America and everywhere. Nice. And teach first is a, is a nonprofit. Um, and yeah, I see a lot of companies who work with some in the tech space where they're, they're for profit. So what, what made you go down the nonprofit route and like, how then is teach first funded? Yeah. So teach first, I think probably, well, I started 20 years ago. Um, it's less of a tech, it's not really a tech company. Uh, unlike my current, my current company, tiny is much more tech focused, but, um, you know, I think we were doing it early on as a partnership between government, the private sector, the charitable sector. So, you know, it made sense to start as a charity at, at that point, um, like 20 years ago. It's funded through a combination. So we get um, some charitable donations and funding, um, some money from central government, which funds a lot of the teacher training aspects of it. And um, also then there's some fees for services around school fees. Uh, schools pay a fee for each teacher they recruit. And I think there's some other fee for services. So at least when I was there, we tried to keep it as balanced as possible between those different income streams. So so that would, you know, have its independence and, and get the right support. Nice. Well, it thanks. Uh, I, I know you've, you've moved on and obviously the most of this conversation today is going to be about Tiny, but did just want to chat to you a little bit about Teach First because it's like a really fascinating space. Um, to move on to Tiny Now, your your current business, which is obviously focused more on the childcare space and helping children get like the support they need before they start school. Um, again, ex- just to set some context within childcare in, in the UK market, like what childcare options currently exist for parents, and, and what are the associated challenges with those with those options right now? I mean, there's not enough options. So this is the problem. I mean, there's a massive supply shortage. You know, anyone out there who has kids, I'm sure knows this or has friends or relatives who have children, small children. It's really hard. Um, and it's it's just simple, you know, supply and demand. There's massive demand and, and very little supply. I mean, that's, that's you know, economics 101. Um, the reason there's very limited supply is because, first of all, there's not, not a lot of money in the system, which makes it difficult. Um, nurseries really struggle to pay living wages for their staff because they have tons of overhead and they, it's really difficult for them to, you know, have enough money to pay staff 
what they deserve. And, you know, there's lots of people who want to work in early years, but, but, you know, not enough who are able to do it at, you know, eight pounds an hour or whatever they pay. Um, I got very excited about childminding, which is basically nurseries people run in their homes. Um, it's, you know, really good for kids because it's a small sort of family type setting. There's, they follow this early years curriculum. It's regulated, it's, um, safeguarded everything. You know, it's not like, um, babysitters or anything like that. You use government payment schemes, but the number of child minors has dropped a lot. Um, because really I think it's, it's hard to run a child mining business in your home. I mean, the good thing is child minors can earn a good professional salary because they take care of three or four children they keep almost all the money. They don't have the overheads. It's kind of like Airbnb or, um, you know, you, you use your resources twice basically, which is great. Um, but it's not easy. Like you have to integrate lots of payment schemes. There's all sorts of difficult things you have to do, which is complicated. Um, and, uh, so that's why after, after teach first, I started this thing tiny, which is a child mining agency, which is really focused on supporting child miners and growing it. And it's very tech based. I, I think that's the solution. Like so many things, um, you know, tech is the way you like in any part of the world, if you want to make things work better and you want to um, get more out of less, you have to use tech um, at some point. And I don't think anyone's really used tech in child minding in the right way. So we, we've we been building stuff and we've been we now work with over a thousand child minders. Um, and basically what we're doing is helping them to license, get licensed, registered. And once they're up and running, it's a whole operating system for them where we deal with all their payments and contracts and follow the earliest framework and curriculum and professional development and feedback from parents and everything child related. And, um, yeah, just everything you need to run a business. And then, uh, are there taxes we do with them and, and expenses and everything. So we just try to make it really easy for them to run child mining business, a really high quality one. And, uh, and that way we're hoping to grow supply and really increase the number of child minders in the country. Yeah. Cause I think that's the thing about child minders is, um, whenever you think about kind of care for children, you naturally go straight to the parents and the child and, and like their pain points and what they need to what their needs are but child wonders you, you kind of forget they're self-employed they're small business owners in their own right but a lot of them don't necessarily have that training so i imagine because it's not they don't need like a huge scale of business like you said it's like three or four children so maybe it's not so much about like marketing their services but it's more about the the running of their business and all the um you know being compliant with with any like regulations they need to have the yeah the accounting all of those good things which a lot of people just don't know about so like you said that's where the tech angle really comes in comes into play. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy being a childminder. Um, I mean, what, what many of our childminders are really good at is working with kids and they're really good at, um, you know, as you can imagine, they're, they're great with the kids and that's their skill. And there's lots of people out there in this country who are really good at working with kids and that's an amazing skill. And, you know, it can be a really fun job, uh, um, and a really fulfilling job, but they're not necessarily good at like dealing with taxes or integrating lots of government payment schemes or, um, you know, doing lots of contract work or how they communicate with parents or all sorts of stuff, which, which just is, is not easy. Um, and we try to take all that away from them. Awesome. And, um, I guess just to explore that a little bit further. So, so like, say if I wanted to become a childminder, I am someone that's great with kids. Um, and I come across Tiny and I sign up, like, what does that look like for my very first interaction with your business to becoming like a, a sorry, successfully set up like Childminder? Yeah. So we'll work with you to get registered. Um, we get all your information and it's all through, through an app. 
uh, it takes a couple of months. You you have to do some training through the app. You have to do an in-person first aid uh, course or some safeguarding, but it's pretty straightforward. There's lots of background checks we have to do with you, which again, you do all through the, through the app. Um, sometimes that takes a few weeks to get some of the information back. Um, and then at the end, we'll do a visit to your um, venue, make sure it meets our standards uh, for, for children, and then you'll get license. You'll get a license, registration license. Um, but all that sometimes takes um, you know, a few weeks to do, and then, then you're up and running. And then once you're up and running, we'll help you find your first customers. We'll work with you on marketing your business. And then um, you know, we'll deal with all the billing and contracts and everything. And um, you know, you'll be able to have a successful childminding business. Nice. And um, on the website, you mentioned the tiny home. I was wondering if you could just explain, like, what what is the tiny home, and in general, like, what what are what are the key ingredients to creating like a nurturing environment for for young children? Yeah, I mean, first of all, like the the space itself, there's a ton of um, variety of homes. So we have you know big homes, small homes, um, all sorts of you know different sizes, flats. Um, you basically just need a front room and. Uh, a park nearby or a back garden or something um, and, a t- and a toilet the children can use. Um, so it doesn't have to be massive. And um, what we've seen is like a real variety of how the, you know, child minors work in the homes. You know, some do a lot of outdoor work, some more focused on, you know, um, focus on, a, on an additional language or on, on a certain, you know, way of working with the kids. So there's a lot of variety. I think, you know, the most important thing is um, there's some structure to it. Uh, lots of love for the children. Often, uh, child minors work well. They're like almost a surrogate family where the children in our homes are siblings and you have some who are a little bit older, some a little bit younger, and they learn from each other. And it's almost like a, you know, it takes a village to raise a, a family. Like it's, it's you know, in a village, I'm sure that's how you, most many, you know, children would be taken care of all the time is, you know, you'd have these sort of like little settings. Um, and it's really good because it gets the children really ready to go to school and it's a good, um, you know, prep, prep for, um, school preparation. Definitely is. And I guess, uh, you know, someone, I, I'm a, I'm a father of two young children. Um, and I think the hardest thing for me when it came to childcare is like the trust element Like you're no matter which route you go down, you're trusting someone with your, ch- with your, with your children. Um, and I just wondered like how you kind of baked that into the tiny product in terms of like getting that trust element right with the parents so they feel very comfortable with whichever child minder they decide to, to kind of match with and, and use. Yeah. I mean, child minors are heavily regulated. So, you know, um, and tiny, our child minors are even, even more regulated. So we know what child minors are doing every week. They go through tons of background checks. We know everyone who's in the house at any given time. Um, you know, we, you know, these are people who have gone through a lot of background checks who, you know, are really um, qualified to do the work and, you know, heavily safeguarded. So, you know, it's not like a parent is just, with, when you use a, a licensed child minor, it's not like a babysitter or a nanny who don't don't have these safeguards. I mean, these are, are licensed at your earlier as professionals where, you know, parents should feel a good level of comfort. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. That makes a a lot of sense. Um, And I I guess when you... you 
look at the product, it's a two-sided marketplace with, with the parents wanting child mining services and then the child miners that sets up on the platform. And I think I saw on your website, you're the UK's fastest growing child mining agency. How have you achieved that growth from like initial traction to today? Like what, what have been the most successful channels for that, that growth and going to market? I mean, I, I have seen like there's a massive... I mean, it, it's just interesting in the market because there's a massive like um, group of people out there who want to become childminders. It's it's not a um, you know it's not something where people don't want to do. I think it just hasn't been set up right for the 21st century. It's still set up at, like the way your grandma would have done it 50 years ago or, or 40 years ago. Um, you know, it, if you think of the positives, a lot of people like working with small kids. It's not like it's not a job that like you can't find people who want to do it. I mean. It's really fun, you know. I mean, I, I I like spending time with small kids, and they're fun. Um, and um, a lot of people really enjoy that. Uh, people like working from their home. People like the flexibility of your own business, where you can create your own hours. Um, it, there's a lot of real fun about being a childminder. Um, so it's the numbers have been dropping. The number of childminders has been dropping tremendously. I don't think it's because there's not a lot of people who want to become childminders. I think it's because the market doesn't work properly and no one's out there really helping, supporting, and um, onboarding childminders, which is the gap we're trying to fill. So, you know, I think what we started seeing is as we just let people know about the opportunities, market it, um, use word of mouth in different ways, we're, we're seeing there are a lot of people out there, many more than I think would have been thought, who um, would be good for this and want to do this as a career yeah i can imagine i think sometimes it's just like a lack of awareness of of how you get into it and how you can run quite an effective business and do something that you you really enjoy um in terms of um the business model because unlike teach first this is a for-profit business i just wonder if you can can share like the revenue model at tiny yeah i mean so it's really simple we take a percentage um of of the um income that chalmers make so we do all the billing, contracts, everything, and then we we take a percentage, somewhere between eight to twelve percent, depending on like where they are in their business, and um, yeah, and that's it basically. Um, and then so if they're successful, we're successful. If they're not, we're not. And you know, we're really aligned with our child miners on helping them make their business successful and work really well. And then other than the percentage they give us, they really shouldn't have any other expenses um, beyond some toys and just ensuring their their house is set up properly. The next thing I, I always like to talk about a little bit is like the the core metrics that you look at because you're you're a mission driven business. Um, I'm sure you really care that what you're building is is going to have a great impact on the childminders, the parents, and the children. So, what, what's like the number one or maybe number two like indicators or metrics you look at where you're thinking, right? You know, if we're shifting the needle on this particular point, then we know we're going in the right direction and, and we're like delivering on that mission that we have. I mean, well, in earlier shifting the needle on getting more people into, into, you know, more high quality people into child mining is, is the, is the, is the thing, because I think, I think it's just a very simple supply constrained market. Like there's just not enough people doing it right now and we need more good people to do it. So we need them to um, be successful in, in, in the role and everything. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, over time, my goal would be more children being school ready, like really, you know, starting school, especially what's good about child mining is it works really well in all backgrounds. Most of our child miners, well, our child miners come from all different areas, but they, they skew more towards lower income neighborhoods and, um, more of the families come from lower income backgrounds. You know, the, the, again, we have all backgrounds, um, as, as parents and as, as, um, child miners, but you know, the idea is this is affordable, 
high quality childcare, you know, that, that can really work for all families. So hopefully we could also help more children from different backgrounds be ready for school, um, which would be a really um, positive of this. Major win. And um, Tony is, is VC funded. How much, how much difference has that been for you in terms of running a business now where you're, you're VC funded in terms of like how you think about growth, um, how you are scaling the business versus obviously kind of like Teach First, which was nonprofit, which I assume is very much the other way of like being very careful with how money is spent. I mean, it's not too different, to be honest. Like, I think, you know, we're careful. Obviously, we're careful in our business. Um, and the way VC are working now is they're much more interested in profit than revenue. I think things have changed over the last year, you know, um, where um, profit and EBITDA is, is you know, really important. So it's I don't think it's like it was five years ago where people just sort of uh, spent tons of money on tons of growth and it wasn't sustainable. Um, um, I think that's sort of changed. Um so I, I mean, it's not massively different from journey, to be honest, at least how we ran Teach First. Is Teach First, we're really focused on growth. We're really focused on, you know, making something that works, making the books um, balance. Um, I, I, in some ways, it's easier working with VCs because they're much more growth focused. And sometimes charity boards, I think, are very risk averse. I think that's a problem in the charity sector. I think many charities don't have the impact they could have because they're not focused on growing enough. And I think that's a problem. Um, so, I mean, I've enjoyed working with VCs so far. I think it's been a really yeah, fun way to run, run it actually, because it's, it's very much aligned on our goal, which is to grow. Definitely. And, and uh, looking forward for Tiny, what, what are you most excited about over the next couple of years? Like in terms of what you're building, what you're working on, what's going to be coming out? Yeah, we're really excited. The tech is, uh, you know, every month we're adding new parts to the tech and, you know, um, we just this month now adding a new part to really help, um, uh, follow, uh, help, help our our community follow the earliest foundation stage framework and um, how to keep track of it. Um, and I think that that'll really be supportive. I think where we are now is we really want to get to um, grow and scale. Like we think, you know, there's a massive shortage of child minors in the country in childcare and the numbers have been dropping and there's no reason the numbers should be dropping. So, you know, we think we can turn that around. We think we should get back to the number of child minors we had 10 years ago as opposed to the number we have today. Awesome. Well, I'm going to be following the Titan journey and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that happens as quickly as possible. And then I'd um, like to spend a bit of time just chatting to the guests a bit about their, their kind of personal journey as a founder, especially someone like yourself, Brett, who's run um, two successful businesses um, of quite different types, although some quite similarities as well. And um, I guess the first thing is I've, I listened to a few podcasts that you've been on and I, I understand that early on in your Teach First career um, that there were like early on in the business, it nearly, I think imploded was maybe the term that I heard due to, to kind of like leadership style. Um, you're, you're chuckling. So I think you know where I'm going with this. Um, but I just wonder if you could share a little bit about kind of what the leadership, your leadership style was at that point, like what, what happened and, and I guess more importantly, like how you help kind of turn that around. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the normal, well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's um, first of all, startups are difficult, both teachers and tiny. And when you're doing a startup, you want to move really fast and sometimes things break and, you know, bringing everyone with you is really hard. So it's, it's not easy. Um, I think, you know, I never managed anyone before when I started teach first and, you know, I just, um, didn't focus enough on it and really didn't, um, you know, didn't, um, have enough experience and I probably, um, didn't have the right instincts. And, um, I probably really just annoyed people by like getting involved in things I didn't need to get involved in. So it was a whole learning experience for me. Um, you know, and I think it was really hard those early, early days, like any, any, you know, good, big startup. But, um, 
yeah, I think, uh, I think hopefully I learned a bit over the time. Certainly, um, you know, I feel, I always feel sorry for some of the people who worked with me in the first year or two when, uh, I probably wasn't the easiest person to work with. I think that's quite a common story. Like I think a lot of founders, um, especially like first time founders, some haven't even run a business before or like been in a leadership role before. And suddenly they're, they're have, if they're VC funded, could have a lot of money and, and they expect to grow very fast. If you could go back to your earlier self and give yourself some advice or, or like kind of work on those leadership things that are like, um, like sooner. Do you think the best thing is it like having like great mentors or advisors around you to help you with that transition into like leadership role and managing teams? Or is it like a different way of learning that you think would really help people and first time founders in general when it comes to building out a team? I mean, I think mentors are so important. You know, I've always had a few great mentors and, um, I mean, that's always worked for me. Like, you know, and if you can have honest relationships with a few people who could really tell you when you're being a, an idiot, um, that's, that's great. Like, I think that's some, I think that's really, really useful, you know, um, having great people who have really good experience who will give you honest feedback and you'll listen to them when they're telling you you're being an idiot that, that I, I, I don't know what's more helpful than that personally. I agree. And I think those people are really valuable um, and they're very hard to find, aren't they? Because like some people don't necessarily want to tell you what you need to hear sometimes. The ones that actually will <laughs> mean a lot. Um, next thing is like, obviously 15 years in a business is a, is a long amount of time. 15 years leading a business is, is even kind of longer if, if you see what I mean. And um, I was keen to see like, how did you know that at that point was the right time to step down as like CEO of Teach First? Yeah, I mean, we had basically reached our scale. Like, I think we we had gone as big as I think we can get, and um, we hadn't grown. You know, I think we did. We did. It didn't make sense to grow anymore. And I feel I was getting bored. Basically, I've been doing the same thing over and over again. And you know, I felt like I wasn't growing as an individual. And um, you know, I didn't think I was necessarily in the best place to help teach first any anymore. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I gave like a year's notice um, or 18 months even. And, you know, 15th anniversary felt like the right time. Like I felt like I'd done what I wanted to do at Teach First. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't really have other things I wanted to do. And then I thought it was a good time for someone else to take over basically at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. And no, it makes make sense. And, and, and like that, that day when you, that felt that final last day, when you did kind of like, uh, you know, step away and say goodbye for the final time. What did that feel like? Was it was it like relief, excitement to go on something new if you had like your next plan in place? Yeah, I think I felt like I did what I wanted to do at Teach First and it was like relief and excitement. Like, yeah, you know, um, like I felt I did, you know, I felt pretty good that I did a good job there and, you know, I achieved what I wanted to and I left it in a good place. And uh, I think that's all anyone can do in any organization, right? I mean, it's always, you know, we're all just caretakers, um, whatever we're doing, like, you know, for the next generation at some point. Um, and, uh, that felt pretty good. And, um, then it was basically, um, real excitement about the next thing. Like, I, I mean, I was really excited to start something new, get involved, something more techie, a bit more, you know, VC focused, um, a new space like early years. So, you know, I think I was really ready to look forward at that point. And, um, kind of linked to that, I guess, um, like I, I was, comparing the two businesses and, and one of the things is obviously teach first you were the sole founder tiny you co-founded with two others um i just wondered like what led to you decide to co-found the second time round, and like secondly what were you looking for in those co-founders like how did you know those are the right people to start tiny with yeah i definitely wanted co-founders because it's much more fun with good co-founders i think um so i wanted people who had tech experience because i didn't know i didn't have tech experience and um you know i knew like 
if we wanted to build something that could scale and grow and have a real impact, it had to have a real tech backbone. Um, so that was, I, I mean, that was my thing. I wanted two co-founders who, um, one or two co-founders who had the tech background, but who um, shared my values and we all share really good values. You know, I think who um, thought we could work well together or aligned on what we wanted to achieve. But we have very like complementary skills. So it's been, it's been great working with John and Ed, my two co-founders. Like, I think it's been a really fun relationship. And how did you meet them? Like, if you don't mind me asking, like, what was the process to like find these people and then kind of make sure that you were all on the same page and you did share those values and approach? Um, so, I, I mean, first it was Ed. Um, I basically asked like 30 or 40 different people, do you know a great CTO <laughs> for a startup? And I, I met like maybe tons of people. Um, and then someone, one of my colleagues, friends, like introduced me to Ed. We hit it off. I remember we had a great lunch. And um, yeah, then we started going from there basically. And then Ed introduced me to John and I think it's using networks, you know, I mean, well, I was you have to kiss a lot of frogs, right. When you're like looking for a partner, whether business or romantic and uh, yeah, that's basically what you have to do. Yeah, no, I think that's fair advice. Um, and then as someone who's built a couple of like what I would call kind of four good businesses, um, some of kind of social impact, I want to get your advice and view on like what is really key to get right in those early days so you can scale a business that stays true to that to that mission to those values to delivering like a positive social impact to people. I mean, I think the the classic things are getting your mission and values right, you know, and really being aligned on that because then you can let people go off and do their own thing much more. So, I mean, really agreeing what are you trying to achieve and then what are the ways you want to achieve it. Um you know, and what is the values of your organization? And then making some really difficult decisions early on to stay to those values, like whether if someone's not working with the values to, you know, ensure they leave the organization or calling people out if they are showing the values or not showing the values, you know, even if it's difficult. Um, yeah, I think those are the two things. And I think organizations maybe don't always spend a lot of time getting those two things right. Like, what is your vision? Like, what are you really trying to achieve? What are the values you're going to achieve it? And then, you know, doing everything kind of stick to those two things. I think that those that's what i would say i think that's great advice because yeah, i see the mission is like the direction that everyone is going in that you can like rally everyone around and your values like your your moral compass as a business like how you make decisions who you bring into that organization um so agree those those two are absolutely key um i want to talk to you a bit about i mean i work in recruitment so i'm always kind of interested in like the attraction of talent and when i look at your career through a third it's like from a certain angle what you've done is basically look at um, sectors, um, career paths where there were lots of barriers in place and, and not enough people were going into those areas, which was then kind of impacting um, the, the the kind of end users. And I just wondered, like, when you when you look at what you've done in teaching, what you're now doing in childcare, um, and just in general, like, I think even when you were a management consultant previously, you were looking at this in, like, banking. What do you see? Like, what are the common themes that you've identified in terms of being able to attract people into a certain space or career path? Like, what do people generally most care about when it comes to careers? I mean, I think what people care about is colleagues feeling you're developing as an individual, a bit of status. I think those sort of things people care about a lot more than money. I mean, you always have some people who are very money driven and they could work for, you know, a bank or something. But I think the vast majority of people want to make enough money that they can live you know, decent middle-class lifestyle, um, hygiene factor. But beyond that, if the job is professionally developing them, if they're working with people they like, you know, if they have a little bit of status at least, um, I think if they're making an impact, people want to know they're making an impact. They don't, you know, 
you know, that most people want to know by doing their job, they're helping someone else. Um, and I think if you could really get that, you know, out of people, then, um, you have good jobs, which is why, like, I think teach first with teaching or tiny with childminding. I think what we could show is like, this is a really nice community of childminders. You're part of it. Tiny, you can make a good professional salary, you know, so it ticks that box. You're making an impact in children's lives every day. Um, you know, um, we're trying to give it a bit more status as an earlier professional, um, in different ways. Um, you know, um, all those sort of things I think can, can make a job really good. And I, th- I think that's what people are looking for out of their lives, other professional lives. No, I completely agree. Um, that the trend I've seen, all the things you just mentioned, but the thing that I've seen really start to come to the fore in the last two or three years has been the focus on like impact, as you said, like, well, what I'm doing have a positive impact on people's lives. And that's becoming like a much bigger driving factor alongside the like financial stability, good career progression, working with good people. Um, but that's a trend that I'm also seeing, which I'm pretty happy <laughs> to be seeing as well. Um, my final question for you, um, linked to kind of like people is, um, you know, every company has different views on this in, in terms of how they want to work in terms of like hybrid, remote, um, office-based. And I just wondered, like, what do you prefer and, and, and like why? We, we're doing hybrid. It's working really well. So we have an office in Holborn, a tiny, um, but we share it with another company and we use it Monday, Tuesday. They use it Thursday, Friday. We all mix it up on Wednesday. Um, and you know, we, have people based all over the place, but we'd like people to come in the office like one or two days a week, work from home sometime of the week. I think that that seems to work really well. I think, I think it is important people get together sometimes, you know, I, I do think FaceTime is important and having an office at least some days a week is important, but you know, it, it is so, I mean, I'm working from home today. It's just lovely. Like just getting out of bed, going to the gym, then just going to my back garden, working for the day. Now I have to worry about transport. You just get so much done so quickly. I feel like you have so much free time, um, you know, because you're not commuting and you're not, you know, doing so many other things. Or um, So it does feel like that sort of hybrid working is the right way forward. And then when you're together, you really focus on being together. You know, you don't have to just be all working on your computer separately together, but you're actually doing stuff together. Definitely. Yeah. Like I, I, again, we have something similar, like our team get together like once every couple of weeks, once every like month. And, um, from a creativity perspective, like high energy that, that really does come when you're together and you can't get that through a video call. Um, but there are some times where you just want to be head down in like a flow state at home. You can just crunch through stuff. Um, so definitely agree. Um, so right. In terms of anyone that's interested in following the tiny journey, where's best on social media to, to follow tiny? I mean, you know, our, our Twitter and Instagram is just tiny, T-I-N-E-Y. So um, we can trademark T-I-N-Y, obviously. So uh, E-Y for early years. So T-I-N-E-Y uh, on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. So we're all over the place. Awesome. Well, Brett, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks again for coming on the show. And um, yeah, wish you and the team all the best. Yeah, thanks. Really nice uh, chatting with you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.